Hello and welcome to this episode of Faith in Politics. As always, your hosts are Bethan and Will, and we're really glad to have you with us. This month, we have a Scottish-themed episode for you all, because Will recently went on a little adventure up to Scotland to visit the Scottish Parliament and the Church of Scotland. So, Will, tell us a little bit about what you got up to. I had a really good time in Scotland, Bethan. I always enjoy going to Edinburgh and, and seeing our friends at the Church of Scotland. So I had a conversation with... Uh, Irene McKinnon, who works for the Scottish Church's Parliamentary Office, about some of the work that the Church of Scotland does uh, with parliamentarians. Had a conversation with Paul Williams to hear about some of the work that the Church of Scotland is doing around climate change with congregations across Scotland. And then I spoke with Ross Greer, who is a Green MSP. Ross was elected age 21 and at the time was the youngest MSP ever to be elected. Um, In the conversation you're about to hear, Will and Ross cover an absolutely huge range of topics, but mostly focused on climate justice and uh, the role of young people. Ross has a lot to say about a lot of different subjects and is is a really engaging and and thoughtful person. And uh, as someone who's a full nine months older than I am, I feel like I have to get a move on with my my career and life. Um, But really good to, to talk with Ross. And I began by asking him what it's like being a young person in Holyrood. It can be quite a, a sharp contrast. Um, I find quite often that I'm in this strange place where I get to advocate on behalf of a, a generation in this parliament that often won't have our voices directly heard otherwise. But I'm not just here as a young MSP. That was something that I experienced quite a lot in the first few weeks and months after I was elected, where there were a number of people who just wanted to see me as Scotland's youngest MSP, not as the Green MSP for the West of Scotland, because it was a way to almost diffuse the political agenda that I had. I was elected to serve my constituents with a distinct vision for what I want to see for my region, for Scotland, for the world. And folk were trying to divert away from that towards what they thought of as the softer issues of youth in politics. But actually, in diverting towards those issues, they found that they were considerably harder than than they expected. If I'm going to just be talking about issues that affect young people, well, I'm going to talk about the climate crisis, I'm going to talk about housing, I'm going to talk about the low-wage gig economy that we've got. And suddenly the folk who thought that that was a way to soften all of this realised that actually that maybe wasn't the case. The flip side is when I'm actually engaging with uh, other young people at the age of 25, I'm kind of stretching that definition now maybe, (laughs) Um, but particularly when, when I'm engaging with schools. It's nice that I get to confound expectations a little bit. You see, particularly with primary school kids, um, either when they come in here or when we go to to the schools, they have a particular idea of what an MSP is going to look like. And I'll turn up looking smart enough, but in jeans and trainers, and I'm quite different, obviously, to, to what they expected. And hopefully that gives them an idea that actually there might be massive problems with our political institutions. There might be quite justified, chronic lack of trust, but we can in fact get inside those institutions and change them from the inside as well as the outside. And hopefully it makes politics seem like a less distant and less, or or certainly more relatable uh, sphere of life than what a lot of young people feel it is at the moment in quite a justified way. And what do you find when you're talking to young people about their expectations of you just because you're so much closer in age to young people than than most of the people in this place. Yeah, I mean, there are MSPs in here who I've been reminded I could do the job for 50 years and would only then be the same age as some (laughs) of my colleagues. Um, I've found it scary enough when someone pointed out I could basically do the job for 20 years and I'd be 41 at that point, 20 years after my first election. I thought, man, I don't know if I can stomach the idea of 20 years in here, I'll be exhausted by the end of it. But with... With other young people, I think they feel that, um, on the one hand, it's a fantastic opportunity to raise issues that um, they simply might not raise with another politician because they don't feel they would get it. Like The example I would give is one that we've actually been working on for about two and a half years and finally got the progress that we wanted. It's personal and social education in schools or health and well-being. It's called umpteen different things in different schools. And I came into Parliament knowing that the way we do PSE in our schools wasn't working. It was wildly inconsistent. There were huge gaps in it. Um, We found that three and four young people across the UK were leaving school having got sex and relationship education, but not consent education. And I don't think you should be able to do sex ed without rooting it in consent. I remember being at Hustings for the election in, in 2016, and there were a lot of young people in the audience, which was great. 
and one of them asked, what will you do to change PSE? I was the only person on the platform who knew what it was, never mm. mind, had an idea of what I would do to change it. And that's not meant as a, a criticism of my colleagues, because once I was elected, I was uh, on the education committee. It was the first thing I asked for. Every other member of that committee was, I hope they won't mind me saying, far older than I am. They all agreed to look into it. And when we collected the evidence, particularly from young people, and all the MSPs in the committee made a huge effort to get evidence from young people on this, they all realised that actually this was a massive problem and we needed to do something about it. It was an example of an area where there wasn't a, a massive ideological divide on it. Like all five parties represented on the committee, everyone agreed, this is just a problem, something's broken, we need to fix it. And over the course of two and a half years, we went from committee inquiry to report, government response, a review and consultation, and we now have a set of recommendations the government has adopted in full to fix PSE. And frankly that is something that just wouldn't have happened if a young person hadn't been elected it wasn't on the agenda otherwise despite the fact that you had a generation of people for whom this came up every single time I spoke to to any group of young people the issue of PSE came up because it was an issue that all young people were aware of it wasn't working so you have those opportunities like that the flip side is sometimes folk can be patronizing without meaning to and say, ah, oh, you know, we, we need to connect more with young people. We need to get more young people involved in politics. We'll get Ross to explain Snapchat to us. That'll help. <laughs> and they don't mean to be hostile or dismissive, but it's folk for whom this is so wildly different to their experience of politics as a traditional politician, as someone who's been here for a long time, that it can be a little bit jarring. And certainly the, the way I go about doing my job can certainly be a bit jarring for some of my colleagues. But we're all in here to do slightly different versions of the same job, and that's fine. And much of what you're in here to do is to raise awareness about the climate crisis. And this is a, a moment of great opportunity as well, isn't it? That the, the Scottish government is, is making commitments and, and there's increased activism. And I just wondered I just wondered where you feel like you fit in all of that. Yeah, that's a, a funny one. Obviously, the climate crisis and the urgency of it and how we respond to it is a major reason why I got into politics and why, why I joined the, the Greens. That, certainly the broader left progressive vision, but with climate at the heart of it. And I've been in the Green Party for 10 years and I was 15 when I joined. For most of that time, I did not feel particularly optimistic about our chances of stopping the climate crisis. And don't get me wrong, I'm not overflowing with optimism now as report after report comes out about how close to the edge, how close to the tipping point we actually are. But what I've seen over the last few months has given me more hope than I'd had in the previous 10 years. Between Extinction Rebellion, the school strike movement that has gone across the world, uh, we've seen countries, Finland has just announced a 2035 net zero target. Uh, Norway, because of their heading towards 2030, uh, Iceland have set ambitious targets, New Zealand have set ambitious targets. Um, in most of those cases, I'm mentioning them because it's, it's my green colleagues who are in government and that's why I'm aware of them. But what I'm finding is a genuine groundswell of awareness that those of us who've been pushing at this for quite some time had hoped was coming, but didn't necessarily know whether it ever would. Because the challenge of the climate crisis is that unlike specific natural disasters, it doesn't happen uh, immediately in an incredibly visually clear way. Unlike, uh, say, the threat of nuclear weapons, the threat might seem remote, but you know exactly what would happen uh, if, if a nuclear war were to occur, something genuinely catastrophic. The climate always felt like a much more abstract thing to try and get folk to wrap their head around. The problem we've got now is that crisis is actually starting to happen. We are seeing those devastating effects. We largely see it happening in the global south in a profoundly unjust way. But people are actually seeing it now and are getting really, really concerned about it. And certainly young people are actively rebelling against what they feel is this massive generational betrayal. And I feel that my, my role in this is to try and not bridge that gap because... I genuinely don't think that establishment politics is ever going to do what's required to save the world. I think it needs to be replaced. I think it, um, the whole system needs to change. That's what I'm here to do. Um, but if I can bring the movement into the political sphere, uh, I am massively enthusiastic about uh, direct action, genuinely disruptive acts of rebellion, because that's now what's required. But if, as well as doing that, I can bring that movement here into the parliament where we do actually negotiate over legislation, where we are actually trying to amend stuff like the Climate Bill to make it stronger, where we're getting governments to commit to clear action plans to do something about it. And they won't always commit and they won't always agree with us. Um, and 
I suppose the, the role that I play or that the other green MSPs would play is in recognising where we can actually use the parliamentary process for transformational change, but we will also be the first ones to recognise where that's not going to be possible and where we do encourage the movement to go out and get disruptive. There's growing awareness, as you say, but there remain different ideas about how we solve the climate crisis. I wonder about the danger of the climate crisis and, and tackling it becoming or, or being seen more as a, as a hobby horse of the left. How do we get out of that problem? That's a massive challenge because the only honest way to figure that out is to decide for yourself what you think the solution actually is or, or if there are multiple solutions. I mean, I, I flatly come at this in the point of view that is capitalism, our entire economic model has caused this crisis. And as far as I'm concerned, there is no way to stop the climate crisis within the confines of capitalism, within the confines of this economic system that depends on ever-increasing growth, otherwise you're in a recession, um, and ever-increasing growth requires ever-increasing consumption of resources on a finite planet. Um, so I don't believe that capitalism is the way to solve it. So I, I inherently have to reject the idea that your coalition to save the world from the crisis can span the whole economic spectrum um, from, from left to right. That will create challenges, but I think that that is something the environmental movement does need to grapple with and doesn't have a coherent strategy to win. Um, the Green Movement is naturally inclined towards consensus-based decision-making. We really like, we think decisions are usually very well made when you can bring together a consensus on them. I don't think the climate is one of those issues. I think the climate is one of those issues where there's a relatively small group of people whose interests are so vested in the destruction of our planet that we will not come to an agreement with them. And our responsibility is to stop those people. Our responsibility is to dismantle their industries. Our responsibility is to expropriate their resources and redeploy them to stop this crisis. I think we have a moral responsibility to do that on behalf of the people who are dying because of this crisis right now, never mind everyone that's going to come. That makes it politically much harder because you're, you're then immediately saying that actually there's a su substantial group of people out there who you're not trying to win over, you're trying to stop. Um, I think we just need to face up to that and accept that as part of the reality because these people, what they want to do is not part of the solution. I'm totally up for having a debate around whether uh, we need a very state-driven response to the climate crisis or I know people who genuinely believe that there, there will be free market solutions that will do it. I utterly reject that, but I think it's a fair debate to have. Um, what I don't want is the idea that for someone like myself and the folk who are at the kind of very laissez-faire free market end of this, uh, to feel as if we have to come together to deliver a solution because we have fundamentally different aims. And I believe that the way we tackle the climate crisis is by making uh, our systems, our economic systems, our political systems far more just and far more equal than they are now. That is going to fundamentally put me at odds with the people who like the free market, laissez-faire, undemocratic systems that we have at the moment. We have 10 years left. As far as I'm concerned, my side of this argument um, and that makes it sound as if there's two equal sides. I don't think there are. But the, the position I take has 10 years left to literally save the world. Um, not because we believe that the status quo is worth saving. But the status quo isn't an option anymore. We either face crisis and catastrophe or we can transform the world into something much better. That will involve having opponents who we defeat rather than the idea that we can eventually bit by bit win over everyone in society. Caroline Lucas was talking recently about the idea of justice and, and that the debate around climate change needs to be framed in terms of an improvement in people's quality of life. But I think about this as, as Christians, that sacrifice is one of the key tenets of our faith, that, that we sacrifice because um, God sent his son to, to be a sacrifice for us. And so I wonder how as Christians we navigate that question of, of, of sacrifice. Is that part of what drives us to be involved in this movement too? Yeah, I think so. I mean, fundamentally, I believe that Christians should be at the forefront of the response to the climate crisis because this is a crisis that could um, literally end creation as we know it. And we have a unique perspective on creation, that, well, a perspective we will share with other people of faith um, because we recognise the creator and we recognise creation as a gift. We are not overlords of it. We are stewards. We have a responsibility. We don't just have a right to destroy um, the idea of, of how sacrifice comes into it. For me, um, the, the sacrifice here is, is in the movement, the struggle 
to save the world from this crisis and to save the world from the people causing the crisis. We need to recognize it's not an abstract system causing it, it's people driving that system. Often people are trapped in that system themselves and, and, and can be liberated from it. Um, but it is driven by a relatively small group of people who are very consciously and enthusiastically doing it. The sacrifices in that struggle. Um, now, for some people, that sacrifice is much more tangible than others. We look at particularly environmental defenders in places like South America or Central Africa, for whom this is a life or death struggle. Um, whether it's you know, protecting rainforests or endangered species or whatever it may be, uh, the number of environmental defenders who are dying every year, who are being murdered every year, uh, is going up, not down. As this uh, crisis becomes more profound, as more people feel they have to take part in it. Now, for those people, the sacrifice is, is obvious and immediate. Um, for us, that sacrifice is obviously completely different. Most people here will not need to put themselves at that level of risk. Don't get me wrong, there is a level of risk involved in non-violent direct action in the way you would do here in the developed world, particularly if you're the kind of person who might be vulnerable to uh, injustices in the policing uh, system. If you, if you are a, a young person of colour or a disabled person for whom getting arrested could be potentially much more dangerous than it is for myself as, as a white man. Um, but we as the environmental movement have made a mistake over decades of firstly trying to explain uh, the solutions to this crisis in the context of lifestyle changes, but also then framing those lifestyle changes as sacrifices that actually uh, you can't fly anymore, so no more of the holidays that you enjoy. You can't eat all the, the food that you want to eat. You're going to have to get rid of your car, etc., 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 rather than framing it in the way that Caroline Lucas has, which is absolutely the right way in saying um, the way our system works at the moment isn't actually good for uh, the lives of the overwhelming majority of people. And it's not about taking your car away from you. It's about making public transport so affordable, so accessible and so good that you don't need to use your car. And actually the net result of that is not just a reduction in climate emissions, but breathable and safe streets for our children to play in as well. Uh, it's about constantly framing this around the way that we can improve people's lives. Because as much as uh, I think that we have a responsibility to sacrifice uh, in the name of a greater cause. If we're talking about the notion of climate justice, and particularly from the Christian perspective of our responsibility to the least among us, the, the marginalised and, and the oppressed, there are people in our society who have suffered enough through no fault of their own. And if we continue to take the uh, view that this is all about individual lifestyle changes, that burden falls the hardest on the people who can least afford to bear it. Actually, what we're talking about is saving the world in a way that improves those people's lives. And yeah, recognises that um, if you do go on three or four foreign holidays a year, I am asking you to sacrifice uh, probably all but one of them. Um, I don't think that that is a radical sacrifice. Um, and there are people who are going to have to go through discomfort. And by, I'm not using that word to disguise job losses or anything like that. Um, if we're talking about agriculture, we will need to help farmers transition away um, from you know, uh, dairy or, or beef are the, the most obvious sectors. The reality is we need a dramatic reduction in those sectors. That doesn't mean we need uh, less farms. Uh, it certainly doesn't need, uh, mean that we need less food. We just need our farms to do something different. And we need to help them to do something different. And we have a responsibility to help them rather than just lecture them and say, this is your fault and actually you just need to shut up shop now. Because that would be profoundly unjust. Not lecturing people, but... The, this kind of change is going to require difficult conversations and I think about the kind of conversations we need to have in our churches and as Christians more broadly about identity and it feels like at the moment we're in a place where our identities are, are fractured and disparate and I think about that particularly in the context of Brexit and I think about that in the context of Scottish independence mm. too and I wonder what how you feel that we can live alongside each other in our churches with contradictory convictions where those identities feel really important and, and still unite with a common purpose. Yeah, there's, there's a f quite a few different elements to that. Um, I quite liked some of the work that the Church of Scotland was doing over the last few years, and I think other churches got involved around the idea of learning to disagree well, le learning to have good civil discussions about issues that you might fundamentally disagree on. Um, where that's usually come into a very tangible context in churches is on issues of human sexuality that have consumed a lot of mainline denominations in the UK for, for years now, and where we have not disagreed particularly well. That's why there are now far more denominations in some cases than there were before. Um, there's, there is a tension there, though, because the ability to disagree well depends on having quite a 
substantial level of privilege. I think of um, friends of mine uh, who are gay or friends of mine who are trans and telling them that they somehow have a responsibility to quote-unquote disagree well with someone who denies their existence or denies their rights I think is profoundly unfair, certainly for me as a, as a straight white guy, cisgender white guy to, to say. Um, so as much as yes, I do think that as a society um, we don't know how to debate and discuss very well because we're positively discouraged from doing it. Um, people are told, you know, the two topics of conversation that you don't have at the dinner table are politics and religion. Well, I think the church should be very much in the business of both. Um, we need to learn how to talk about these things well. Um, that, I think, is a responsibility for our schools to be bringing up generations of young people uh, for whom debating and public speaking is a, a widely uh, held experience rather than what we've got at the moment where it skews massively towards uh, private schools in particular. They give their young people that opportunity. A lot of state schools don't. Um, I think we do need to learn to, to improve that. Um, part of it, though, does require figuring out what you actually believe and having the courage to stand up for it. And I think that certainly in the Church of Scotland, in my church, that has not always been the case. Um, and I constantly hear in the debate about the climate crisis in particular that we need to um, slow down and be less radical uh, or we will lose people from our congregations in the northeast in, in these areas, that these communities that are dependent on oil and gas. Um, I think that that is uh, a dereliction of moral duty, um, especially when we are talking about what we know, what the Church of Scotland acknowledges, the devastation that is being wrought on communities very, very far from here because of that industry. I, we have a responsibility to the church in Malawi just as much as we have a responsibility to the church in Aberdeenshire. We have a responsibility to everyone, church or, church or not. At a certain point, you need to accept that actually we have a moral obligation to stand up and speak out and do something about this. And that may mean that some people, for reasons of their own, don't feel that they can be part of the church anymore. And I think that that is tragic. But if someone feels that because the church is standing up for the world to save the world from a climate crisis, that they are then no longer welcome in the church, I think that's personally a tragedy. But it can't stop the church from having that clear moral obligation to stand up, talk about this and to take action based on it. And there, there is a tension there. Learning to disagree well takes a lot of, of privilege in some situations. There are situations in which that's absolutely what we have to do. There are other areas where it really should be quite clear cut what we stand for. And it's not like uh, the climate debate has two sides, one side of which is somehow advocating for more climate change. No, we have people who want to save the world from this and people who are trying to put that off because it's uncomfortable those people are not the opposite side. There's a tiny number of people who are quite happy just continuing doing it because they make money out of it. Um, but in most cases, it might involve an uncomfortable conversation. It might uh, involve some people uh, not being happy that their church is criticising their employer. That's the way it's going to have to be. You know, the, the church doesn't hold itself back from condemning the arms trade. Why are we holding ourselves back? And the church has often done this. It has held itself back from criticising uh, the oil and gas industry because it's afraid of what will happen um, out of self-interest. We will we'll lose people from our congregations. That means we lose their standing orders. That means that questions about the viability of congregations and the wider financial issues that we've got. None of that is good enough. We are called to do this. I firmly believe that we are called to take this action to save the world. And we need to have the courage to stand up and do that. On the issue of disagreeing well, we've been talking for a while and we haven't yet discussed the fight you managed to pick with Winston Churchill and, <laughs> and, and half of um, the country is yeah. what it felt like. Um, how do we engage well and disagree well and tweet respectfully? How, how do you feel about that? Because you're quite... I'd say prolific on Twitter, you mm. use your social media. What, what are your reflections on, on all of that? Yeah, the Churchill experience was an interesting one. I certainly knew that what I was going to say would be controversial and would get a strong reaction from some people. Um, again, it was, it was certainly an area where, where privilege came into. Um, what I said, where I said that Winston Churchill was a white supremacist, well, Winston Churchill said that he believes in the supremacy of the white race and often used the phrase the Aryan race. So... He was a white supremacist in his own words. That shouldn't really be an issue for debate. 
Um, I also said he was a mass murderer because of his um, inaction over the Bengal famine, or indeed his action taking food out of Bengal, uh, his concentration camps in Kenya in the 1950s against the Mau Mau rebellion, uh, he unleashed the black and tans on the people of Ireland in, in the uh, early 1920s. I believe you can legitimately make that, you absolutely can legitimately make that argument, I'm far from the only person that has, far more qualified people than me have. Um, the reason I got such an incredibly hostile response, and I'm talking on the scale of tens of thousands of extremely abusive messages, of death threats, um, as well as the kind of nonsense with Piers Morgan on TV, um, was because pe for many people, their sense of self was absolutely tied up in British identity, and their sense of British identity had a significant portion of Churchill to it. Uh, and the problem was the popular idea of much of British history, not just confined to Winston Churchill, is uh, based on a myth that makes people feel good and feel proud. Um, this is not unique to Britain, but given that Britain had an, an empire, it's a more profound issue for us than for many other countries. Uh, reckoning with our own history is something that we have failed to do. In fact, the United Nations has repeatedly reported on Britain's failure to deal with its own history and the fact that people in Britain have a real gap in our knowledge when it comes to the, the historical crimes of the British state. Um, I look at friends that I have across the world, never mind friends here, um, who might come, for example, from the Bengali community uh, or, or from Ireland. Um, friends whose community has suffered as a result, did historically suffer as a result of, of Churchill's actions. There are people alive today who were tortured in Kenya in the 50s by his government. You know, uh, This is something quite tangible to a lot of people. Um, as a white man, as an elected representative with a platform, I knew that by tweeting that I would get a hostile reaction. It would be nothing compared to if a, a young black woman wanted to make that point, for example. Uh, the level of hostility that you get on top of the content of your message just for being who you are explodes. I mean, I, I look at the abuse that my female colleagues here in this parliament get for saying exactly the same thing as the men, but just for being women when they're saying it, and it is shocking. So I, I took the conscious decision to put myself in that position uh, because hopefully it would make it easier for the next person who wanted to make that point, regardless of what position they held in society. And I firmly believe that the reason the response was so extreme, and in many cases more extreme than, than I was expecting, um, is because we do not in this country foster a, a sense of critical thinking or self-examination. Um, it is seen as genuinely unpatriotic or as, as treasonous uh, as, as I've been described um, for wanting to critique our history. When the history of our country involves the construction of concentration camps, we absolutely have to discuss it. Um, and our inability to discuss it is profoundly unhealthy. Um, and it also makes us look downright odd in the eyes of the rest of the world. There were people in this country uh, saying to me, in fact, um, one of the uh, Good Morning Britain anchors said to me, it was the most depressing question I heard in the whole exchange, which said, um, Mr Greer, your point of view here is completely unique and isolated. I thought, how can you possibly believe that? India is a country of a billion people that suffered profoundly under uh, Winston Churchill. Ireland is our closest neighbour and suffered profoundly because of his actions. Do you genuinely believe that what I'm saying is isolated? If you take uh, the world's population, I'm quite sure far more people agree with me than agree with Piers Morgan on Winston Churchill. But we take this incredibly insular point of view that comes from this idea that we are a superpower, we are a force for good, uh, that can't be criticised. And because that is so tied to people's sense of self-identity, it's emotional rather than rational. So people get emotional when you discuss it. Rather than having any appetite to learn about it um, and to debate, and don't get me wrong, there are people who profoundly disagree with my take on this, but who want to actually have the debate because they think it's valuable. That's not actually something that we foster and encourage in this country. Um, and that leads you to the profoundly unhealthy place where I make an observation that is backed up by huge amounts of historical evidence, backed up by Winston Churchill's own words, and I get tens of thousands of abusive messages, I get death threats, I get Piers Morgan uh, trying to go ballistic at me on TV and really just humiliate himself. It showed something really, really unhealthy about uh, what British identity in its broadest sense is, 
and how we actually have national conversations or the fact that we don't have these national conversations, which is why perhaps when you get to an issue like Brexit, um, it becomes so incredibly hostile because people are not used to, people are not encouraged to, and people are not educated at school in how to have a good debate. Let's end on a more hopeful note than Brexit <laughs> and, and our inability to debate well. Um, you are a, a young Christian in an institution, in, in a political institution, and I wonder what you think our churches and, and members of our churches can do that you and your colleagues in this place can't. What's the role for churches today and how can we really get stuck in and, and make the change that we want to see happen? Well, I think across the board, the church in its broadest sense is in a position to say and do things that are largely impossible or certainly very difficult in the political arena. There are the sacred cows of politics um, that often political parties don't want to touch. Now, I'll use an example of something from the climate crisis, like the, even just the idea of saying the North Sea oil and gas industry needs to end. You know, my party's obviously got that position, but on the whole, that's not an issue that gets oxygen in Scottish politics because everyone is worried about losing votes in the northeast of Scotland. And where you've got these issues that are of profound importance, but for electoral reasons, because politics exists in cycles and ultimately the only metric politics or uh, politicians are judged on are votes, um, politicians will shy away from the difficult issues that are uh, electorally endangering for them. The church doesn't need to worry about that and shouldn't be worrying about that and, and should be in a position to be brave about that. Nationally, most of our churches do quite good stuff and can be quite engaged in politics. The kind of culture change that I want to see in our churches is away from this idea that uh, politics is something separate uh, and somehow, in many cases, people think it's, it's actually inappropriate. Uh, and the example I would use would be um, at my church uh, last weekend, we had a youth service. I, I run our, our youth groups. And our young people wanted to talk about the climate crisis and the refugee crisis from the context of uh, the response that Christians should have to them. And afterwards, folk were coming up, giving very positive reactions, and someone came up to me um, who had really enjoyed the service but said, but I didn't really like those political undertones. And they obviously thought that as a politician it was my idea and I persuaded the young people to do it. And I explained, no, they actually took all those decisions for themselves. But that was definitely someone who felt that the church and politics were two separate things that need to be kept separately. And the only response that I can have to that is to say that Christ absolutely did not think that. Um, and uh, the arena that he engaged in was absolutely a political one as well. And the church has a responsibility to follow him. We individually have a responsibility to follow him. These are the kinds of discussions and conversations that we can be having in our churches in a really empowering way and that make people who would otherwise feel quite disenfranchised and disengaged from politics feel that they have a role in it. The critical thing there though is moving that on to some kind of tangible action. It's one thing to have a discussion in your church about what to do about the refugee crisis for example but taking the next step of tangible action that's where I think churches have an immense amount to offer. We are one of the last mass movements in this country. The trade unions and the churches still have huge memberships, not what either movement has historically had, but still very, very large memberships. Still uh, across the country, geographically comprehensive. We have a lot of social capital behind us, as well as a lot of material resources. Our ability as a church in its broadest sense to campaign, to transform, to change the culture in this country is far greater than what I think most Christians believe it actually is. And part of that is just about a collective self-confidence and actually realising that, no, the church's place is absolutely within the public sphere, not just nationally. This is not just something that we leave up to the quote-unquote leadership of the various churches. Every congregation and every community should be playing that role. And not in the way I've described before of the church is very, very good at putting a sticking plaster on the problems in society. And I think it's fantastic that we run comprehensive networks of food banks. We do a huge amount uh, for people with dementia and their carers. We do all sorts of fantastic work. The um, Crossreach, Church of Scotland Social Arm, is the largest provider of social care in Scotland uh, out with our 32 councils. That's all fantastic, brilliant work. To go alongside it, 
we need to be identifying the root causes of the inequalities and the injustices in our society and tackling those as well. That is far, far more political, but that's absolutely the space the church needs to be in. And when the church does get involved in that space, you find unbelievably positive outcomes that are positive not just in terms of the change we can make in society, it is good for the church as well, especially when you're thinking about an issue like the refugee crisis or the climate crisis. The church is really struggling to engage with young people. These are issues that young people engage with more than any other generation. If we are at the forefront of the campaigns for climate justice and refugee justice, then the young people that we know who are out there, who have an inkling of faith, who have an interest, but don't identify with us as the formal church, maybe they will start to see us as an institution or a series of institutions that they can have a place in and that they want to engage in. So I think that is a win-win situation for us. That's a great place for us to finish, I think. Ross, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. So that was a really interesting conversation that you just had. Ross has some uh, very strong opinions on many things. What did you think of the conversation, Will? I think Ross speaks very engagingly and persuasively about the role that we have as Christians in society and in politics. And, And it was particularly interesting to hear what he thought right at the end of our conversation about the role that we can play as churches, as members of congregations that perhaps he can't play in the Scottish Parliament and just thinking about the different roles that we all have to play in in making change come about. He talked about the importance of the climate change agenda and and making sure that the commitments that are being made by by the governments in in Westminster and in Holyrood, that, that we ensure that they're taking steps to make those happen. What particularly struck me was what he said about the need to overhaul the system that we have Mm. capitalism that that you can't bring about the change that we need through a capitalist system and and i wonder what you thought about that bethan well i was intrigued to think to ask you the same well i asked first (laughs) i think i think his argument was very compelling um in regards to the issue of capitalism being a system rooted in limitless growth Um, But we live in a world that is not capable of sustaining limitless growth in a very practical sense because of resources. And in in that regard, I I did very much agree with him. However, the pragmatic person in me, and I'm a very pragmatic person, thinks that it's all well and good saying down with capitalism, but that can take a while and we don't have a while in regards to the climate agenda. So how can we work to make the system fairer? I do feel that in saying, oh, we need to dismantle capitalism and that's the only way we can fix the environment, maybe is too big a thing for the time period we have. Like, I don't think we have enough time to both dismantle capitalism <laughs> and fix the environment. So you're uh, saying save the planet first and then dismantle capitalism? Yes, the socialist in me is suggesting that we should (laughs) prioritise our continued existence before we start thinking about the system of our major economic models. The question I think that he poses to us is can you bring about the change to save the planet within the capitalist system, within the confines of our capitalist system? The answer is that I don't know. My instinct, though, is that in order to build the kind of broad coalition that we're going to need in order to solve the climate crisis, there's a danger that climate change and the environment once again becomes a hobby horse of the left. It's important to try and bring people on board. And there's a danger that when you start attaching ideological purity tests to an issue like climate change and say that in order to take the climate crisis seriously, you also have to embrace a socialist agenda that goes much wider than just how we deal with the environment that you end up alienating the very people that you need in order to to solve the problem Mm, it's it's a really good point and i think you did touch on it in the interview and it was a good it was the right question to ask because can you can you fix a global problem without everyone at the table who needs to be there however I don't know, I I found myself sort of nodding away at what he was saying in regards to 
the need for mass restructure because we've got ourselves into this mess and it's not like the economic crash where bailouts can happen quite quickly this this isn't a bailout this is a massive structural reshift that needs to happen on a global scale and that is no easy task um let's say we do the impossible and we fix the climate crisis let's let's say in the next decade there is mass push towards creating sustainability um what then like will will history just repeat itself unless the structures that underpin everything shift and i i I think it might um because this idea of economic economic growth for the sake of economic growth um is underpinned by by capitalism i i do think that we have to think about systems and i'm a big proponent of the importance of thinking about systemic change in regards to the environment because 100 companies in the world are responsible for 71% of all environmental degradation and that's important and that is rooted in the systems and the economic systems that that govern our world. There's a question of framing here too I think and Mm. there's the question of do we frame how we combat the climate crisis in the context of sacrifice and the need for people to make changes to their lifestyle that come at a personal cost and there's something very deep at the heart of our faith about sacrifice isn't there or do we talk more in terms of how we all stand to gain from making changes to our lifestyle so when i was listening to um you and ross talk i was thinking about the american politician um, alexandria ocasio-cortez who is pushing for her Green New Deal, which is this um, mass overhaul of the, a lot of things in America, but mainly the infrastructure system, and um, how opposition to her deal um, is... So, so she's suggesting that there needs to be mass improvements in public transport, in train systems, that kind of thing, to reduce air travel, lots of other things as well, um, increase in sustainable energy, that kind of thing. But a lot of people are saying that this will take immense amounts of sacrifice um, and that people aren't willing to sacrifice it. However, her response is, okay, but what about what we gain? We gain thousands and thousands of jobs in the building of new train lines, in the monitoring of them, in the staffing of them. We gain um, maybe an increased understanding and respect for our own country rather than constantly travelling abroad. Um I think often it's only sacrifice when you look at it from a certain angle. However, in regards to things like farming, um, which you spoke about in the interview, the and the the shift that environmental activists are insisting needs to take place, that's going to be really hard. Um, but it is becoming almost unarguable that the shift does need to happen in regards to how we consume everything, if it be cotton for our clothes or meat for our meat for our tables. Um, and mass infrastructure changes have happened before and we've got through them, but we've got to do it in a way where justice is at the centre and we don't marginalise the already vulnerable. And that was one of the aspects of Living Lent that was most satisfying, was that it was... It was people within our churches making a commitment to take action during a a short period of time. But we were doing it together and and that kind of collective action is is what we're going to need in order to, to make a meaningful difference here. Lots of work for us to continue to do and it was really good during my time in Scotland to see Paul Williams who works for the Church of Scotland and engages with churches about climate change and their own environmental impact and I started by asking him what churches are already doing around the environment. There's a huge number of things that, that churches can do and almost you know, almost every person you speak to has a, a different issue that they want to tackle so one of them in particular is, the, is, is pollution. Uh, that's air quality is a very is a very big issue at the moment, especially in cities. It's been an issue for a long time, but now that it's been more closely linked to climate change and um, just the burning of fossil fuels, <clears throat> suddenly there's it's higher up the agenda than it used to be. So we have churches who want to know how they can get involved in addressing air pollution in urban areas. Um, 
So that's, that's one example. Um, but equally, we have churches um, in rural areas who are wondering how they can um, move to a more sustainable form of energy. Can they connect to, can they connect to wind energy? Can they have solar power? Um, what, what's it going to cost to put those on? You know, is, are they going to be able to be supported financially to do that? Um, and everything from kind of that level of energy uh, right down to churches that are wondering whether or not they should be um, you know, doing more for, for kind of nature and biodiversity in their area and how can they care for, care for the environment in ways that, that can happen very locally in, in homes. And there's everything in between. Um, sort of every, every week there's somebody else with a different request saying, how can I address plastic? How can I reduce my fuel consumption? How can I get off the electrical grid? Well, the gas grid, sorry. Um, anything, anything in between. And that, and that must be very exciting for you in, in the work that you're doing. And, and you mentioned that much of your work is about encouraging churches to think about what they can do and, and how they can use their own buildings. What are some of the things that you've seen on the ground happening that have really excited you? I visited a church in um, Dundee, which isn't a, a Church of Scotland church, but it is an eco-congregation um, and that's Gate, Gate Church and they have received a lot of money from the Scottish Government which they've applied for through the Climate Challenge Fund to try and re- change their building entirely to be as carbon neutral as possible um, if not actually fully carbon neutral um, they've had entire new boiler systems installed they've had solar panels installed they've had water storage systems whole new heating systems um, that's a full a full-blown project that has project managers running the entire the entire thing to bring that building to net zero. What's encouraging about that is that that's, they've set out as an example congregation to say we want to go zero and we want to show other churches that it can be done. And they have quite an old building, they've, they've got issues with, with the windows and it's a big building and how do you heat such a big building when all the air is rising to the top and so they've overcome that by installing um, infrared heaters that, that heat the building differently, that sort of thing. The next church that will get in touch will say, well, we, we, re- we can't do much with our building um, because we haven't maybe got the resources to do so financially. However, what we can do is get the messaging out through our congregation that actually we can do a lot more at home. And that's quite exciting because decarbonising one single church community building is arguably not necessarily as effective as actually decarbonising the 30 homes of the people that maybe go Mm. to that church. And climate change affects everything and it affects everything that we see. But at the very grassroots level, if we can make, if we start to identify the things that everybody sees every day, the, the plants and the little animals and even even down to the produce that we buy start to contextualize that and connect that to climate change then you slowly start to build up an awareness um, from the bottom up one is um, a project called faith action for nature which is um, a joint venture between um, the church of scotland the scottish episcopal church rspb scotland and eco congregation scotland who are all working together to engage um, churches, getting churches to find wonder of the natural world on their doorsteps. And for that we have produced a number of resources um, which you can find on faithactionfornature.org which are geared around getting getting people to, to look at their grounds, to actually do a survey of their grounds to find out what they've got or even better what they haven't got um, and then working towards welcoming welcoming nature back to back to the church and to their to their grounds. Um, and indeed to their homes as well and that's a project that you know I I go out to congregations and I I meet with them and they often say very apologetically oh I'm really sorry we haven't really got very much nature here but we'd like we'd like to do more and almost every time I visit a church I find way they're doing way more they are very modest Mm. they do way they have way more than they initially think (laughs) they do because they don't look at at the soil and and the cracks the cracks in the walls where where God's creation is is making home in a, in a church, um, and once they start sort of saying, well, actually, you've got this stone wall here, and these are all the different creatures that are living there, then suddenly that unpacks it a bit, and suddenly they realise they've actually got probably thousands of species that are resident in their area that they weren't aware of, and now that they're aware of it, they're more inclined to look after it, and more inclined to look after it, they're more inclined to have an awareness of what impacts those creatures that are making their home in their church, in their homes. Um, that's very that's a very exciting project because it's it's very much about opening people's eyes to what they've got around them the other project which we've just got at the moment which is actually um a church and community orchard project 
which is a project that is associated with um, eco congregation in Hungary, where where the they have a, had a project for several years now planting church orchards in in church grounds as part of saving protecting biodiversity and um, specifically fruit fruit the biodiversity of, of the, the variety of fruit trees sorry um, Hungarian varieties and so or orchards are great places for biodiversity and trees are great carbon sinks and so this is a natural place to begin um, for a new project in Scotland which is learning from projects in Hungary where churches have been establishing these orchards for years now they've they've had over they've had thousands of trees planted through I think about over 160 churches have now had these community orchards established and so we're starting out with just four churches this year to, to, to get new community orchards established which integrates nicely into the, the climate change movement because we do need more trees um, to be absorbing carbon but also these new community spaces that are that are run and managed by church communities but integrate into local communities the opportunities to to engage on environmental issues you know if, if everyone was to ask you why you would be a planting a tree well as Christians we plant trees because you know we have hope for the future and that's where our messaging is so different from many other environmental groups who perhaps don't have as much hope for the future so following Will's conversation with Paul Williams, he then went on to talk to Irene McKinnon, who works for the Scottish Church's Parliamentary Office. And he started by asking her how the independence referendum has changed the public's engagement with politics in Scotland. I think a lot of it was to do with the fact that we actually had about two years before we actually had the referendum to discuss all the different options and all the different um, arguments. There was a white paper that people could read and kind of dissect and there was debates. But I think as well, a lot of the conversation around it was just very helpful and really engaging and no matter what side of the debate you were on or how you voted in the referendum I think people found it quite an engaging process and like you say I mean obviously the turnout was fantastic but also I think it did revitalize a lot of ideas that people had about democracy so I think in the in the past in the more kind of in the last decade a lot of people were saying you know public meetings don't work anymore we're all going online there are lots of methods that were used in the past that is no longer relevant. Young people don't engage in that way. And actually, I think the, the whole process around the Scottish referendum demonstrated that actually a lot of these things that are used by grassroots organisations like churches actually do work. And actually, you can have public meetings and people do really engage with them. Um, so I think that's that was great. I think a lot of people really felt involved in it. it there was a great buzz about Scotland for such a long time, um, I mean, obviously not everybody agreed, it's not like everything was always positive, but I think there was a um, this desire to to create something new and it was very hopeful. So the, the impetus was on, you know, is this going to be the best thing for our country? And I think both sides of the debate wanted to, to find out what that was and to really explore that. So in a lot of ways, it was really positive. How do campaigns like Meet Your MSP continue to maintain that momentum that you talk about out of the mm. independence referendum what's your experience been of that it's been good i think a lot of people um feel like it's it's something that they can do it's something they can really just get involved in so um they don't need to have like great expertise on climate change or um, fuel poverty or or different things they can the message of the campaign very much is this is about creating a relationship with people that have been chosen to represent you even if you didn't vote for them they now represent you so um it'd be great if you got to know them so i think the message of the campaign is really quite simple and i think they do feel like they can get involved in it i think for some people it's definitely um more challenging because maybe they it's a party that their representative is from a party that they don't necessarily agree with but I think from our perspective we say well actually you know if you've got a differing point of view then why don't you share that because um, it's it's part of engaging in politics and part of engaging in the fact that if you care about your local community why wouldn't you talk to the person that represents them on a national level so very often obviously churches organize events all the time and they've got things going on all the time they've got clubs and they've got groups so churches are already kind of set up for literally just inviting a politician along so they don't need to some have but they don't need to organize a meeting that's just about the politician or a question and answer or like a hustings and um, where that can be done is great but for a lot of people they maybe just invited them along to a fundraiser coffee morning or um, a walk 
you know, and something like that can be really good because it's not, um, it's a very informal way to just to get to know people. And it is, it's kind of continuing that idea of um, just relationship building mm-hmm. and with a view to continuing that as well when things do come up or when things do concern them or um, when things are happening in the local area that they do want to discuss with their local politician. And that building of relationship hopefully increases trust on both sides, actually. Yes, exactly. Because I think as well, when we speak to MSPs and and MPs as well, I think sometimes in the past they felt a bit intimidated about walking into churches or just turning up at events. Um, Some are are very good at it and they do it all the time, but others have just felt that actually maybe that's not their place or or they feel that there's a bit of a barrier or they're not sure how churches would take to them. And there's this kind of invisible wall sometimes between you know, churches and politicians, where churches think that um, actually politicians are either to be avoided at all costs or, you know, um, just not, they just don't think about them when they consider um, inviting people to an event. So I think it's just breaking down that barrier because for both, it seems to have been in the past that sometimes either they didn't consider each other or they just thought actually they wouldn't be welcome. So for us, a lot of what we do is um, literally just bring them together and say, churches want to meet you can we set something up and also to the churches you know we've spoken to these local politicians and they're really interested in knowing what you're doing locally have you got any examples of a, of a church that's done this particularly well um i think one really good example was um up in aberdeen where we had a whole presbytery decided to take it on so they obviously had a lot of churches within their presbytery um that that were interested in the project but they also really wanted politicians to see what they were doing so they had a, a, like a, a community centre, a town hall um, and they just they, they filled it with stalls and information um, and people from all the different organisations and the different churches that they work with um, and they invited all of the, the local MPs and MSPs along to it and it was fantastic because it was such a big kind of event, they got a great response most of the, I think all the MSPs went along and quite a few of the local MPs which was a fantastic and it was a great it was a great event it was a lot of good buzz and I think it's that recognition as well that obviously politicians are really busy and um, the more people you can get them together in one room at the one time is really helpful for them but also it was great for the local community the churches were working together and they were working with um, other volunteers and I think it's just it's great to for politicians to see churches doing that because it was really just what they do best Um, but also for them to see actually politicians are interested in what we do. So to conclude, we're going to finish with our monthly book recommendations, but Will has informed me that he hasn't read anything this month, so I am going to shake it up a bit and talk about a podcast I've been listening to. I've been listening to uh, Ed Miliband's podcast called Reasons to be Cheerful. Well, the episode I I recently listened to was on um, constitutional frameworks and how we are only one of three countries in the world, um, England, New Zealand and Israel, that don't have a constitutional written framework. Um, So we're the only three countries without a written constitution. And that is bizarre. And there was a really fascinating debate about does this country have a need for a written constitutional framework? And um, and if so, what would it look like? And it's just it's something to think about. Um, so finally, getting on the podcast bandwagon after all these months, and I do listen to a few. But, uh, I know some people are like podcast diehards, and I am not on that not on that level yet. I, I certainly am a, a podcast fan, and I I think it's interesting on the on the constitutional settlement stuff. I, I don't know about why New Zealand doesn't have a constitution, but certainly in Israel, the reason that there's no constitution is because there was no agreement whatsoever in 1948 about what that constitution would say. The Declaration of Independence is incredibly vague and and asserts um, asserts the the Jewish and democratic nature of of the state of Israel, but but virtually nothing else beyond that. And I think the New Zealand model was because they they almost certainly copied the UK model because back then they were they soon became independent from us but I imagine they were following the most established model which ours which was ours um, but it's just really fascinating and a lot of the arguments that were said were about how in the issues we find ourselves in at the moment with the deadlock of Parliament at present. Um, 
the the power of precedent and the power of John Burko to use um, precedent and and Erskine May, who wrote this set of rules in the eighteen um, in the eighteen hundreds as a as a sort of constitution of its own kind, and how and how that's enabled just the most bizarre processes to take place. And one thing that was said, which I think was the most compelling argument I heard for a written constitution in this country, was that people, um, one of the panellists said that she spends 80% of her time trying to explain to the British population via the news or via articles or via newspapers how their parliamentary system works. And and with a, with a framework, with a written constitution, I'm not suggesting it would be the most transparent system in the world, but you would at least have an understanding of the, the basis of which we're rooted in. What we have right now is 750 years of history, 400 years of that being not democratic in the slightest. Mm. And, and no wonder people are completely bewildered by democratic processes. No wonder people don't understand how Parliament operates. Um, and I think... I just think it was a very compelling argument and one that has stuck with me more than the very academic jargony ones of oh it would allow for a more streamlined parliamentary process and stuff like that I think it's more there's a real need for people to understand the processes in which they're rooted in and in which their like, everyday lives are relying on so with that we're going to sign off thank you so much for joining us and we hope you'll tune in again next time